You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia, and I'm assisted behind the scenes by my sound engineer, Justin Ward. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art, and about how everyone is wrong apart from us. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest this week is Nick Claremont. Nick is an editor at Arc Digital, writes the Word of the Week column in the Washington Examiner magazine, and is a book reviewer and essayist. And he's currently working on a book on the history of trolling. If you're not familiar with Arc Digi, do go and check them out. They're on Medium, Arc Digital. But just, uh, you know, you must love Ario more. We can't have any disloyalty on this podcast. But uh, you can you can love Arc Digital second to us. Welcome, Nick. It's wonderful to be here. So I want to talk to you about the language of wokeness. And I think that your work first came to my attention because of an essay that you wrote for Tablet Magazine, in which you um, talk about the usage differences between the English language and what you call wokies. And um, you say, I'm going to quote a little bit, Wokies is not a distinct language at all. It is a fashion in English-speaking culture that has the opposite of its claimed effect. Rather than empowering the marginalized, it condescends to them and entrenches the privileges of the already advantaged. It is a new face of the oldest con in the meritocratic capitalist handbook, namely favoring the lucky and the powerful and the privileged while claiming to be crusading for justice. Um, So can you tell me more about how you think that this language usage favors the lucky, powerful and privileged? Absolutely. Um, well, first of all, thank you. And thank you for complimenting ARC. And I should say, I've, I'm not affiliated with Tablet in any way, but I think we should all love Tablet because they do just amazing work as a magazine. Um, and I was very happy to be published there. Uh, and I, I also, um, I will certainly speak to your question, but I also want to just call out uh, your essay, Writing Wrongs, which gets at a, um, unrela- a related and distinct issue, which is academies. Uh, and I guess that's how I would answer the question, which is that there, there are these, we all know about jargons. Uh, there are many jargons. Uh, almost anytime you enter a new field, whether it's a different area of the academy or a different uh, professional area, there's a bunch of new words you learn. And some of that is necessary. Some, some things just have new technical things that one needs to learn and they need names. And so you learn new names and new words. Um, but Often you learn more words than are strictly necessary to name all of the things. Uh, and I find that, um, so where, where you quoted me there, uh, I'm, you know, that's fairly far along in the essay where I basically say, look, this thing that I've been saying all along that wokeese is this different language from English, which isn't true. Uh, it's a useful thing to have been saying, but it's not true. What, what it is, is people who are perfectly capable of speaking English, making a fashion choice, um, the same way that somebody who might make a fashion choice to dress in a way that is self-consciously 
um, striking and different and is making a point to other people uh, that I choose to dress this way and you can't help but notice. Um, and it sets me apart from you. These people are choosing to speak in a way that says you wouldn't dress this way. You can't dress this way. Maybe you can't afford to dress this way or you simply wouldn't you wouldn't be taken seriously at home if you dress this way. It would make the ordinary people you grew up around think that there was something odd and irritating about you. But it just means that you're trying to make a point. Um, and your point, less than it is the content of the point, is just that you're trying to make a point. So to take that all from maybe the less abstract um, I think that there is something about the way that this thing that people have some sometimes called wokeness, and it's now, I guess, there are people who say you shouldn't even say woke. And all I mean by woke is the things that people who were in favor of wokeness and said you ought to get woke three or four years ago said it meant. Um, I guess now there's a reaction against even mentioning it because it's usually used derisively. But... Um, the way that, as you mentioned in, in your excellent essay, people who are writing in um, kind of standard modern academic styles use way more sort of pseudo-technical terms to express themselves. Uh, woke people will use these sort of pseudo-activist terms to express themselves, not because it advances activism, but because it advances their own uh, sense that they are that they will be perceived as activists. Right. So it's it's a it's signaling. Is that what you're saying? It's yeah, that's most of what I'm saying. Um I think it's important to know though that um it's signaling that people are very unaware that they're doing. I'll also say like just as a personal note, when I write like I think that this is basically rich kids from what we over here in the US call private schools, uh that I know I know these kids. I spent a lot of I, I went to university in Ireland, but I'm I'm American. I went I went to quite a posh private school. Uh I spent a lot of time at Yale during university just because I dated somebody who went there and I I come from a world of just privileged kids and I and I spend time around people who both are and aren't and I just note um perhaps uh, unfairly, if you want to say that, but it seems to me that, it, that this is a tool of people who, um, it, it is among other things, a tool of people who wish to go be lawyers and consultants, uh, and make a great deal of money and operate in a world where more people rather than fewer people have Ivy league degrees more than it is a tool of people who are seeking to undo power and change the world for the better, right? It is. The people who are employing this terminology perceive themselves to be, or at least claim to perceive themselves to be, um, doing something on the cutting edge of undoing the status quo. They also tend to be uh, the greatest beneficiaries of the status quo, or at least setting themselves up with the credentials to eventually receive the greatest benefits of the status quo. Right. Um I think there are a couple of things to unpack there. And the first is, you talked about how only a few years ago we were being told to get woke. I think I remember Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez unironically wearing a t-shirt that said, get woke. 
Um, and um, now it's become almost a dirty word in the same way as political correctness did before it, mm-hmm. because it's it's you know it's nobody is using that word to describe themselves anymore. Um, that they talk about themselves, if at all, as the social justice left. But I actually get pushback even talking about the social justice left from people on that side of the left. They just want to be known as the left. So they want to try to um, conceal the fact that other leftists may disagree with them. I think that's one reason. Yeah, yeah, that's one reason for that. But I've noticed that it's become, the other thing is this claim that this is just moral goodness. So that when you say social justice, you literally just mean that you want a more just and egalitarian society. Well, don't we all? But, well, of course. But the question is, that, right, it's, it's, it's almost, I mean, I hate to say it in this condescending way, but it's, I think it's a very immature way to look at the world to assume, well, we all want a better world. So anybody who disagrees with me, therefore, doesn't want a better world because I want a better world. Uh, I mean, sure, like every chain of that piece of logic kind of follows, but I think we all understand why it's not it's not really an argument. Uh, it's just a way of saying that I hate people to disagree with me. And like, so do I. I. I find it very irritating when people disagree with me because I think I'm right and I think they're wrong because that's what it is to have an opinion. Um, but also there is perhaps some wisdom in understanding that one's own opinions are not maybe all correct and other people will have opinions and engaging with them without smearing them uh, may produce some sort of useful thing in one's life. Uh, and to um, to merely name your own opinions with a positive word and then proceed from there is not necessarily going to... Uh, make you any writer than than to name them anything else right i could like i could just name myself like name my personal philosophy of life like correctism and then say (laughs) oh are you against being correct and it it doesn't really mean much yeah i think sarah sarah hader actually um said at one point that you should be especially suspicious of ideologies or political stances, or political parties, or even countries that call themselves kind of the good thing, that yeah. use some um, some synonym for goodness, the People's Republic of whatever, and the Democratic Republic of X. Um, there's a there's a kind of protesting too much that goes on here. Yeah, what are you against if it's the just, people? Yes, exactly. <laughs> Are you against democracy? <laughs> um, I think if you have to call yourself the Democratic Republic of something, you probably are not. Yeah, I mean, the and these things get increasingly, there's a sliding scale of, I, if you've ever looked up um, the self-appointed titles that Idi Amin gave himself, it, it, it's a paragraph long. It's incredible. I, I could look it up now if you wish, but... Um, he ended up, you know, I, one of the things was conqueror of all the fishes in the sea and the beasts of the earth. Like, he, you know, at a certain point, once you start giving yourself titles of righteousness, you can just keep going. And it doesn't matter if they're right. Right. So there's a kind of 
I mean, I've I've noted that there's a sort of opposite. It's really a kind of inverse of the euphemism treadmill. So uh, I've noted I've noted this in Helen Pluckrose's work, and she is, of course, my boss at Ario, and I was Wonderful. also um, I was also the editor of her book. So I've and I've been editing her work for a while. So I've been watching it evolve, and she began by talking about social justice. Um, ideology or social justice leftism, small small s, small j. And then people started saying, well, social justice just means wanting the best for society for everyone in society. So she started capitalizing those words to to indicate that she was talking about a specific branch of leftism, capital S, capital J. Um, and now she's added the word critical. So now it's critical social justice. Um, so it seems like these a, a kind of constant attempts to counteract this rhetorical bait and switch. Right. I mean, I wrote a thing a while ago. I don't personally use the word snowflake to mock people just because I think it it associates me, which is how this really works. It, it associates me with people I, I don't wish to be associated with. But I wrote uh, a short piece a while ago just pointing out that I think as an actual metaphor, it it works just fine. It, it describes people who perceive themselves to be kind of totally unique and who are everywhere and who melt when touched. And I think that that's as, as such, it's a kind of a funny insult. Um, on the other hand, I noticed that a lot of people I, I think were a kind of creeps were using it too much. And so I it just left my vocabulary that way. Yeah, it's left, it's left my vocabulary as well. I don't think I ever, I don't think it was ever very solidly in there no neither mind but i mean i just i think that it's worth pointing out like why do we when i choose to use or not use a word i mean first of all it's it's important to know it's, it's never that conscious a choice we pick up words the way that children learn language which is just by things around us but i think um it's you know usually has as much to do with sort of who we like and don't like and wish to associate ourselves with as much as like thinking very clearly about the vividness of the metaphor the word evokes if it is a metaphor or about exactly how much expressive power it has or things like that and so um, i did want to mention by the way when when you were talking uh earlier that there's this there's this terrific book it's kind of old at this point but it's called euphemism and dysphemism language uses shield and weapon it's by kate burridge and keith allen and i think that we talk all the time about at least i talk all the time about euphemism um and dysphemism is also i think this really useful concept where people mess with the meaning of a word in order to make it worse and creepier than it really is oh that's yes that's an that's a very useful piece of terminology um anything that we refer to in passing i will put in the show notes by the way so don't um, worry about that. Um, the snowflakes thing, I um, I noticed that you you using it in a recent essay in a way that I also still use it, which is as a kind of all encompassing lament over how sensitive everybody has got. That there's this kind of race to the bottom: who can produce the most, who has the most hurt feelings, um, who can produce the most kind of sensitive people. Um, that the vic that's the whole kind of victimhood, the yeah. so-called victimhood Olympics, and um, I like it when it's used in that way. When you're talking about how 
both left and right are snowflakey and there's it's just a blizzard out there. <laughs> and I think you refer to it as um um you refer to Trump as the president of the United Snowflakes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I like that, but the singling out of young people as being snowflakey and kind of showing videos of people crying and things. I find that um, very distasteful. It feels like bullying to me. I couldn't agree more. I, I think that there's an, there's this like two, one of the things that I touched on in the tablet piece is this thing where people will add, um, will add systemic before something where it, it was my understanding that the word, when I was taught what I guess is now a rather outmoded um, conception of why not to be racist. Um, I thought that the ism in racism already covered the notion that it was systematized bigotry and um, ism word, not all ism words, but many is the ism phoneme tends to cover that. And so I thought that uh, I find the term systemic racism to be, it's fine. I don't have a huge objection to it, but I, it seems redundant to me. And um, it does occur to me that the, the introduction of the phrase systemic racism has not correlated over the past, whatever it is, two to four years with more what I might call systems thinking uh, where, you know, and this goes back to something that's not even necessarily like sociological. Uh, people did systems thinking about technology and this produced computers in many ways. So um, it seems to me that if we were to, Part of like the idea of systemic racism was to um, take individual actors out of it and think of things at the systems level. So say, okay, how could this outcome be produced without um, anybody necessarily uh, having the, the intent to produce this outcome? Or a bunch of people coming together to conspire to produce this outcome, each of them with the intent, but rather the system as a whole would create it. I think that's a really useful line of inquiry. I don't think that it's really what people who study "quote unquote" systemic racism are inquiring into, mm. uh, and um, I kind of wish they would because I think it's a it's something that we ought to think about. Um, so, I find I find that to be sort of a dysfunction. It's a it's a an innovation in the language that purports to uh, answer a question that it doesn't even ask. Well, I think I, my problem with it is slightly different. I think I disagree that we, um, I feel we spend too much time trying to break down social phenomena by demographics. We spend too much time thinking about um, this particular uh, phenomenon, for example, unemployment or poverty or something. Um, we. If if people are impoverished, we need to help those people that are impoverished. I don't find it useful to try to work out what percentage of them have what ethnic identity. I feel that there's already too much of this kind of racial bean counting going on. Um, and I I don't see um I don't see it as terribly helpful. Because there's, if people are suffering, we should care about their suffering. There's no reason to care less or more depending on their ethnic identity. But um, to return to the language thing, what I object to is that there's this constant slippage between the two meanings of racism. 
So people claim to be talking about something systemic for which you can't blame individuals, where individuals are just cogs in the system and they just happen to benefit from this thing without having particularly um, wished for it or deliberately caused it, and the kind and the more personal thing. So it just seems to slip very quickly between those two meanings. Oh, we're talking about systemic phenomena, but you specific person are a racist. Um, right. That just seems to happen all of the time. I mean, especially on, of course, in the house of pandemonium that is Twitter, but um, things that happen, things that start on Twitter don't stay on Twitter. Yeah, I think about that slogan, uh, Twitter is not real life, that it, 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 it's, there's a lot of truth in it. And then there's an unfortunate element of untruth in it, where if you merely were to read the headlines, you, you would either not make as much sense of them or ultimately just be able to perceive the presence of Twitter in them. Even if you weren't on Twitter, it, it, um, it makes itself known in real life, sadly. Yeah, I certainly find the same topics coming up in real life with my housemates. I live with four old friends from college, and none of them have ever had a Twitter account. Um, I'm the only person in the house with a Twitter account, or I think who has ever been on Twitter. And nevertheless, I mean, it's partly that now journalists are beginning to cite Twitter as if somebody having tweeted something was in itself a story. And it's also because um, politicians are using Twitter to make statements. And Trump, uh, especially Trump, who is using Twitter to make actual personal statements rather than just press releases. Yeah, I. <laughs> uh, there's been this whole debate over whether when he says something, it counts as an official order. And uh, I don't know. <laughs> and I... I I'm glad that we won't have to keep thinking about this question very much longer. Yeah, yeah <laughs> me too. <laughs> um, I wanted to talk to you about, I, I perceived, uh, so my my essay on the so-called language of privilege um, touches on a bunch of things that tend to get people, um, if they feel defensive of wokeness or any concepts that I identify as woke, um, it tends to make them defensive, whereas uh, your piece on academies, so to speak, is um, it, at least it, if it's offensive to anyone, it's a different group of people or for different reasons. Um, so I thought it would. It, def it definitely offended oh, good, people. Good. Um, a lot of people accuse me of being just too stupid to understand. That's funny. They they accused me when I wrote my piece of, of saying that poor and uneducated people were merely too stupid to understand woke words rather than the other way around, which is what I meant. But um, so I thought that it might be interesting to discuss the uh, similarities and dissimilarities of, of the pieces, because I think that in many ways they um, are making a somewhat similar point about sort of shibboleths and why they aren't really useful. They're useful to individuals, but not necessarily to whole fields. Uh, in fact, they're harmful to whole field. Very much so. I think it's, I don't know that this is really answering your question, but to me, I think the fundamental thing is this confusion between language and reality. 
And that, I think, began before wokeness, and it's something that wokeness has kind of grasped on, latched onto. Um, and that began with political correctness, which was basically an, I, the idea that by, um, by demanding that people use different words to refer to things, you could change the way those things were regarded. And of course, if Steven Pinker has written, you can't do that. You just, um, if you force, if people, if someone is genuinely racist, for example, and hates black people and you force them to say people of color instead, then they will just, um, people of color will just have the same um, unpleasant resonance when they say it as the word black will. So all you're doing is, is you're not changing how people feel. You're just attaching those feelings to a new word. And I think the first time I became aware of this was, um, well, way back in when I was at graduate school, which was, um, you know, we had only just crawled out of the seas onto land at that stage. <laughs> And um, my boyfriend in graduate school, um, a guy called Alan David, who was an academic for many years, and he, who was later an academic for many years, um, and he has cerebral palsy. And uh, the charity, the British charity, which used to be known as the Spastic Society, had changed their name to SCOPE. I can't remember what that acronym stands for. Um, and he wrote an, a, a letter which was published, I think, in the, in the Guardian, pleading for, against the name change. He said that it's, it, he found it patronizing and that it wouldn't change people's attitudes. And what needed to change was how people felt. And that could be changed only gradually through exposure and education and all those kinds of things. But it would would not be changed by changing the name, and in fact, it seemed to imply that um, ha being a spastic, so spasticity is a technical medical term, and it seemed to imply that there was something disreputable or wrong with this, and therefore it needed to be euphemized. Yeah, there's there's a really interesting one that I encountered recently where. Um... Spectrum magazine, which is a magazine that covers uh, issues related to autistic people, um, had as its house style guidance that you uh, are not supposed to say autistic people or uh, formulations like so. Uh, you had to say people with autism. It's part of a much broader style guidance in kind of band pensant journalism where it's called person forward writing. You put person with so that they know that they're not primarily defined by this supposedly negative characteristic. They're a person. And then they also happen to have whatever thing. Um, and they changed it after a while uh, because they found that the people, their sources, the people that they were reporting on, the actual autistic people either were not served by it or just didn't care or actually found it irksome. Uh, so I think that there are a lot of sort of theoretical assumptions by people who are not the so-called um, victims or um, offendees by uh, people who think of themselves as highly sensitive. 
and then uh, those don't always turn out right. Mm. They don't. Mm. I hate to kind of appeal to experience, but it it does it does turn out sometimes that those with the experience um, do, you know, thwart those of us who are merely theorizing. And um, one of the things that I think is thematic in that is that people who have real life experience don't care about words as much as those of us who are trying to solve all the problems with words. Uh, I, I think really, really hard about words all the time. And, and wouldn't it be nice if those of us who wordsmith could wordsmith the world into perfection? Uh, but it, but we can't. And that's one of the things that I think a, a writer should kind of start from. Mm. Well, I feel a writer should care about language for its own sake, for the sheer joy of language, rather than as some kind of social project, because it just won't work in that way. You can't yeah. magic things into existence by by saying words or by changing names. Yeah, I mean, there are such things as real social constructs, of course. I mean, cash is a social construct, but I think that um, whenever it was that social construct theory became so voguish, um, somehow along with that did not go uh, particularly good teaching in social construct theory. It, people just sort of latched onto the term and decided that it was cool and they didn't think all that hard about what it means for something to be a social construct and whether that means it's real or whether that means that we can we can socially construct things into uh, real social change and um, no end of trouble has ensued anyway. Go ahead. And there's also, of course, groups who are having, who feel that the terminology has been imposed on them. So they're not just indifferent to it, they actively hate it. Um, a friend of mine quite recently did a, a Twitter poll, which of course was not representative, but he said, how do you feel about the term people of color? Um, and he said, please only respond if you think somebody would describe you as a person of color. And there was overwhelming hatred for the term. And I actually hate it. I find it so American-centric. Um, I mean, I, um, I find, I, I, I find these, this terminology a little bit irritating anyway, because I never know where to situate myself, because I'm a dual citizen of the UK and Argentina. Um, and ethnically speaking, I'm half British and half Indian. And um, religiously speaking, I'm Zoroastrian and I'm an Indian Parsi. So I never know which which group to label myself as. But um, people well, of color seems like... Sorry? It depends on your politics. Yes. Um, but people of color seems like such an American view of the world. It is. It's, I mean, I in India, are there any people of color in India? Um, well, it's worse than well, that. Either, either everybody or, or nobody is a person of color. Look, if you had told my, my, either my Irish great-grandparents or my Jewish grandparents when they moved to the United States um, and did not face anything like uh, the, I mean, in the United, my Jewish grandparents faced plenty of oppression in Europe, but... Uh, that if you had told them that in the United States they would have been uh, just lumped in with white people two generations later on, I mean, they just, it's not that they would have balked at it or been annoyed, they just wouldn't have believed you. And mm -hmm. I think, um, 
I think that's probably a salutary. I actually don't, I don't know whether I think it's good or bad. I don't care. Uh, it's just not important to me, but I think that um, these, the creation of these things, this, this racecraft is, uh, it, it needs to be observed sociologically rather than sort of agreed with or disagreed with by an intelligent person. It's not real. And so like one thing I've noted in the last year, and I, that may apply to you given your background is this American, uh, it's sort of still on the bleeding edge, but it'll become mainstream is this thing. AAPI, uh, Asian American and Pacific Islander. As oh, though, no, I've, you know, I haven't heard that yet. But there are verticals at Yahoo and NBC and CNN for the AAPI beat. As though a you know Tongan and a you know a Gujarati and a Korean are like in some important, importantly real existing philosophical category with one another, um, and all of this I think is yes you're right it's it's a totally United States based history that um, is a an attempt and failure importantly to reckon with um, historical categories that we are we're, First of all, one cannot help but notice the similarity between the phrase people of color and an earlier now offensive phrase colored people that none of us would use, but it's the same construction backwards, obviously. And so when when I think we mix Nigerian immigrants with the descendants of slaves, you start creating an increasingly analytically useless category of people who may perhaps look similar and then when you imply you know apply that to a to another country that isn't the united states it starts to be even less analytically useful um all of these things just you, you can understand why people do them but they uh can really also understand why they shouldn't how do you feel about the recent vogue for capitalizing the word black i've written on this i think it's not um i mean i think it's, uh, by the way, there's also a recent vogue for not saying nuts, uh, because it's to acknowledge the presence of mental illness is somehow to offend against it. But anyway, um, I, I think it's a really bad idea, um, for a few reasons. One of them is very practical. Uh, I'm an editor and writer and like for, there was that, um, there was a scandal over whether a painting at the Whitney Biennial three years ago should be taken down. And a British artist by the sur a white lady by the surname Black was one of the leading figures in this <laughs> story. Oh, dear. Um, I've dated somebody whose last name was that. So it just it seems to me that, uh, you know, like there, there are major public intellectuals and public figure. We've had uh, Ju Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States, whose last name was that. So I, I just think it one of the it just creates a, a confusion in grammar. Uh, but beyond that, I think that there are very few people in the United States who are black, who will feel recognized and importantly dignified by that editorial change to the style book of the AP in the New York times. I don't think it, rec it represents meaningful change. And then of course it raises the question of, well, if we're doing this, are we doing that? And white people will want to be capital W'd. Uh, I don't want that. Uh, I, one of the big complaints I have about the way that we talk about race words as though the words are the problem uh, is just that it, it does mean that the still 70 plus percent of the United States that is white is being appealed to qua white uh, all the time, just daily, many times in a way that not that they weren't already white or anything, but um, it just 
this is a majority white country with uh with people that I would prefer to not be enjoined to think of themselves primarily in terms of their whiteness more and more and more relentlessly. I think that there is a danger in that. It's not my primary objection to discussing race, and I don't think that that means that we can't ever discuss it or there should be a taboo on discussing it. It does mean that I think that there is an unwisdom in appealing to people as a... And, um, you know, there have been multiple foundings of the clan here. And uh, I'd like to keep it at the number that there already have been. Uh, I I don't like white identity and I would like it to um, to stay as sort of non-activated as possible. But at a certain point, you start raising questions that have a logic all their own. And um, I'd rather just not particularly when the, the sort of that's the cost and the benefit is somebody at the New York Times is happy that there's the capital B in black, which seems to me to be an entirely symbolic and really empty. Benefit. It does seem very gestural. And I am reminded of, um, I'm constantly reminded of um, Baba Saheb uh, Ambedkar, who is the, one of the main drafters of the Indian constitution, um, who said, I don't want people to think of themselves as Hindus and Muslims. Indians should be Indians first, they should be Indians last, they should be Indians above all. You know, it seems very divisive and irreconcilable with civic nationalism, especially when you're appealing to the majority group. Right, yeah, I was going to say, it's not even like Hindutva, though, because it's like if you were to ask the Hindus in... India to not just uh, kind of say, all right, well, we are this thing, but it's not the sort of bedrock of how we identify, like sort of uh, interact with our society specifically, rather than just sort of in our private lives and with our families and with our friends, but rather like we should kind of actively shirk it. Um, and I would just say, like, just don't ask, just who yeah. do yeah. doing this. You cite in your article, um, which I have actually read, but I was just giving you a little bit of a um, a, a cue. <laughs> so, because sure, no, no, no. Um, but I will refer to it in the show notes. And you cite um, dictionary.com on capitalizing the word, and um, they say we will be capitalizing black throughout this entry. Why capitalize black? It is considered a mark of respect, recognition, and pride. This is common practice for many other terms used to describe a culture or ethnicity. Not capitalizing black can be seen as dismissive, disrespectful, and dehumanizing, which I find completely absurd. Yeah, well, you can say anything. You can say it, particularly if you say it in the passive voice and you say can be seen at, you know, I mean... I think you can just say stuff at a certain point. You're just making claims with an appeal to presumably somebody else. And if I wish to write a style guide that said, uh, I, I mean, really, what absurd claim might I wish to say? This, this in Thomas, speaking of uh, academics who write in, in lovely, ordinary English, in Thomas Nagel's essay, The Absurd, he says, you know, you could say the meaning of, of life is, to fulfill your ultimate goal, and but then the meaning of a chicken's life would be coco vin. 
And like at a certain point, are, are we really just going to, to let people say things that simply aren't true? Because I don't really think that I know anybody who, uh, unless they have some sort of active political project that they are serving and they don't believe it, believes that uh, a life lived in a country where the newspaper doesn't capitalize the race they believe themselves to be is a life without dignity. I don't, it's just not a serious idea. Mm, mm. Yeah. It, I mean, do Germans dehumanize people because although their language has capitalizes um, nouns, they use, they don't use capital letters for adjectives that describe race and nationality. Um, you know, is, is Spanish a racist language because it uses um, small letters to describe those things? Well, Spanish is, of course, a sexist and, and language. And sexist language, it... of course. Um, don't yeah. get me started on that word. That's like the N-word. Uh, no, I shouldn't compare it to the N-word because I don't <laughs> no. mean to say it's a slur. What I, I was trying to make a joke, but it's going to be a terrible joke, so I'm, I'm going to stop. I know, I won't what you. I want to say is I'm <laughs> not going to utter that word ever, either of them actually, neither the N-word nor this abomination of a word that is being used to describe Latinos. <laughs> that's, sorry, that's my... It's funny, you know, it's funny you mentioned German. I found this, uh, because I'm always looking at strange language things on the internet, I found a, Germ a German as a second language class for English speakers, where um, because there are there is such confusion uh, about pronouns. I mean, it's confusing if you're an English speaker to figure out German pronouns. Uh, and there are many uh, different usages depending on gender and all sorts of things. Um, the the members of the class had decided simply to use English. <laughs> they just, they said, well, we can't both learn all the different ways you're supposed to use it properly in German and also keep it gender neutral. So we're just going to say they. And so they have these whole long German sentences written out with those, you know, incredibly polysyllabic German words and everything is conjugated properly, or at least as, as properly as these learners can can do it. And then just the word they dropped in wow. there uh, as they were English because they, they couldn't tolerate the, the moral crime of uh, the way that German grammar works. It was a very minor thing that I found in some totally obscure, I think it was a Reddit or something, but it was very, I mean, they were all just trying to be helpful. Like none of these people were, were designing some sort of horrible project to teach something. It was just, uh, I just thought it was a fascinating little thing where people were trying to solve this problem the best they could. And the best they could do to deal with the way another language actually works was say, screw it, let's use English. So let's go back to some of the words that are, that are used in a really odd way within um, wokies. And I mean, we did, uh, I, I don't want to really get into it because it's so obvious, but um, there is this hyperbole of suffering. So people, they, um, they talk about people being dehumanized and erased. Um, yeah, erasure really mm. bothers me. Um, it, it actually bothers me not because they're exaggerating their own suffering, I think, but because they're exaggerating the power that their uh, attackers, so to speak, uh, supposedly have. Where uh, I would, if somebody says that I don't exist, they can say it in those very words, like Nick doesn't exist. I haven't been erased. I'm, I'm right here. Um, it, it might be a very cruel thing to say. It might be something they really ought not to say, but I wouldn't describe it as erasure. Mm. Yeah, it's really, it's, it's 
placing too much power over um, what other people call you and what other people think about you and say about you. That's not where you're... Yeah, it seems like you and I, you and I seem to have this deep agreement that words are extremely important, but also importantly, not magic. They do not, you do not utter them and then the world changes. Mm. And that's where I come from on really all of these things. And then, you know, people will always try to kind of catch each other out. I get very annoyed about this whole debate about whether cancel culture exists, because cancel culture is a phrase that's, I think, inelegant and probably should be avoided. But it's also a joke. It's a joke about the the attempt to cancel Stephen Colbert 10 years ago, who now is, you know, w- nobody would wish to cancel. But uh, it it's just um, it, things have to be read carefully and generously and in context and not uh or sometimes quite literally but either way they have to be read sort of in terms of their etymological history and intention and not treated as though they uh either are about to destroy you or as though they don't matter at all there's this not really very hard to achieve middle ground i know it's not hard to achieve because when it's not these touchy issues or concepts everybody achieves it all the time it's how we all get around and talk to one another yeah absolutely um this does seem to be particularly virulent in the in the um trans um when it comes to uh things concerning trans issues um i mean there's this whole ridiculous debate over whether trans women are women is an accurate statement or not. And it entirely depends on whether you mean trans women are biologically identical to natal women in every way, or whether you mean trans women deserve to be treated with compassion and respect, and um, we should facilitate people living as the sex that they wish to live as within reason, as the gender they wish to live as within reason. Yeah, this is one of these things that um, I, I guess I don't think that things should be about picking sides, but I'm kind of with the wokes on where I, I think I remember once saying to a, a former Boston colleague of mine, like, I'm, uh, I think it's perfectly fair to conceive of gender as being a mental fact and not a genital fact, which I know is like already in terms of the words, like makes sense to identify gender with genitals. But, uh, I think, uh, if you want to, sometimes I think that a lot of these fights and as much as their internet fights trace back to some earlier era of the internet when we were all arguing about god and people would say why don't you say i believe in god but uh god simply is nature and the idea that we should treat each other with decency and then you can say i believe in god and i'd be like well uh i don't know that seems very different from what other people mean you're just trying to get me to you're trying to kind of enjoin me to use a certain phrase um so if that's all you mean, like, sure, I guess in this case, it does seem that people really do just want other people to use a certain phrase. Uh, and it, I don't know, I'm, I'm wishy-washy and confused on this one, but mm-hmm. I understand that there are also sort of, I think, different legal ramifications in the UK having to do in part with uh, prisons and some things having to do perhaps with hate speech laws that I'm not terribly educated about? Uh, Yes, we do not have free speech here, which is a little bit of a problem. Yeah. 
Um, so anyway, that, that's my, my take is uh, I filibuster and don't have a take. <laughs> okay, that's fine. I didn't mean you to um, have a stance on trans issues because um, I'm actually going to be having a podcast on that soon. Um, I have become a little bit red-pilled on that subject. Just spoiler alert Fair. to anybody who's listening. Um, but um, I just find it interesting that there's so much argument there about what seems to be a slogan. Um, yeah. Well, and yeah, sorry, go on. Uh, just as a much broader sort of meta take, I do find that um, there is this sort of buzzword politics or a, a politics of the slogan, which. Um, has as its end. And I think that um, trans activism, which I'm not at all convinced represents most trans people, by the way, um, definitely is uh, takes part in this. And um, what I would say about that observation is just that um, if your politics is the politics of the slogan, uh, if you're thinking in terms of slogans, not that slogans aren't important things and useful and necessary and will always be a part of politics, but um, if your whole political end is to get other people to agree to a slogan, um, that your whole political end is pretty empty, that you probably don't have a ton of real policy changes to suggest, or at least the ones that you do suggest are probably quite silly. Uh, we've just had this fight with you know Barack Obama saying, listen, you guys really didn't think about defund the police very hard. Um, so I think... Um, the sloganifying of politics is one of the elements of the wokeifying of politics, so to speak, or maybe it's one and the same thing. And um, and the thing that you describe in terms of the debate over trans issues, which I maybe shouldn't even call a debate, is is really that. It's just wh I, what are the conditions of victory? The conditions of victory are not really that the world changes materially in any way. It is that my enemies are forced to say, to kind of swear the loyalty oath of King whatever that uh, that shows that they are, you know, that they have lost to me, and mm. um, and that kind of gets to the whole reason I wrote that tablet piece, which is it, it seems to me that you'd have to really not have a big investment in the world, or you have to assume that the world is kind of going your way to. Um, to have that kind of politics or that, that sort of orientation towards politics where you really just kind of want to, I mean, it's the same thing with the own the libs Republicans where they, all they really care about is humiliating their enemies and making them say dumb stuff and giggling at them. Uh, or, or it kind of schadenfreude stuff where uh, I think if you had a, a more robust, serious political program, you might actually think such things as, listen, if they think they won, but I get what I want, that would be okay. Uh, because what I really care about is change, uh, rather than what I really care about is screw those guys over there. Yeah, it feels, um, I mean, I think compelled speech always backfires because it creates so much resentment. I think it's much more if you were on the um on the fence about how you felt about the thing and you were compelled to use the correct language or say the correct slogan, I think that's going to push you away from agreement rather than towards it. Would you agree? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean there's it's it's a 
practically bad. It's, I mean, it's, or should I say tactically bad program? We live in this world of, of almost Victorian levels of sort of taboos and permissions that um, I think most people feel is stifling. And um, many of them probably wouldn't even be aware of their sense of being stifled. They, I think a lot of people are. Um, but it's, it is obviously better to feel like you can say things change your mind if you said something you wish you hadn't uh and generally sort of explore or disagree and then live in a world with the people you disagree with and kind of hope you win and then they hope they win and then you all live together and we used to call this pluralism and um now it's always identified with some sort of uh like as though i sometimes hear uh, described as centrism the idea that you might uh, not think that people who disagree with you about some political issue is like a moral monster. That's not how I understand the word centrism. But anyway, I, I endorse that view. No, that's just a function, healthy functioning democracy. Yeah. I mean, if you think everybody who disagrees with you politically is morally monstrous, then um, the logical conclusion of that is that you want a one-party state. Yeah. I mean, this is, well, because uh, because my view, of course, is correctism, as I mentioned earlier, that the correct <laughs> party should, should win and everybody else should be destroyed. <laughs> <laughs> um, you have a couple of really, um, you highlight a, a couple of words that are particularly, I was about to say problematic, but I, I think the correct term is annoying in their woke use. And one that really frustrates, really frustrates me and frustrates uh, Helen even more is the way they, the way they kind of allude to Marxism as a sort of almost a fashion choice. Mm. And I think by the time this episode comes out, my episode on the international solidarity of the working class with Ralph Leonard, who is an actual Marxist, will be out. Um, I'm certainly not a Marxist, but I also don't believe that um, wokeism has has anything in common with Marxism at all. Except a rhetoric. Except for rhetoric, exactly, because it's not it's not primarily about economics. It's not about creating solidarity between um, people in the working class. Also, Marxism is not identitarian. Being working class is not your kind of core identity. It's a situation you're in in capitalist society. So from a Marxist point of view. Yeah, well, it's, it's still a class in the sense of being a group that identifies its interests and can self-deal, or that you could be a traitor to your class and in service of a different one. Right. So like I'm upper class and I'm enjoined by Marxism to be a traitor to my upper class mm. and towards the working mm. class. These are things that can be understood in these terms, but only in a kind of very low grade meme way. Yeah. Uh, but I think that um, I, let me let me, I guess, just say it in personal terms. I live in North Brooklyn, where um, it is much more common to encounter somebody who is trying to push the. DSA left than it is to encounter somebody who is uh, even a Republican who's disappointed in Donald Trump. 
and um i find you know and where uh somebody flying a united states marines flag recently caused a big uh big to do on a facebook group and everybody tried to take it down rather but wearing a hammer and sickle is considered not to be a, a edgy type of speech so um in this area i would describe most people as um that there's a lot of favorable speech about marx marxist ideas or ideas propagated by people who understand themselves to be the descendants of marx intellectually and um i don't think that they well i think that it's important to keep an eye on material conditions and consider irrelevant other conditions i think that international solidarity is very important and if leftism means anything it must mean that uh sort of the, the focus on the international and the focus on the interests of the lower classes properly understood what they actually do in my neighborhood and i'm i'm really just using it as a as a totem but it is one that's that's near and dear to me um it, they they've all gone very woke there has been this thing you know i mentioned earlier co-option there does seem to me to have been a co-option of what i might consider the proper left by people whose concerns are i would i would deem uh just much more irrelevant just moral irrelevancies uh that are if they I, this is how i always think about it if they won would the world be better and generally speaking, um, you know, I'm not a Marxist. Do I think that like if the international revolution of the proletariat were achieved, would the world be better? No, um, but at least it would be better in their terms. They would have achieved what they set out to do. And if uh, the people who often think they're Marxist, but are really sort of just using occasional Marxist language in our wokes achieved what they set out to achieve. I don't even think the world would be different. I think that people would be using different voguish words sometimes. Uh, I think that there would be a lot more uh, repression of other words that those voguish words replace. And then I don't think that anything would change in terms of class or the structure of society or the way laws are made, um, except for the laws which repress speech. And so I think that they would, they're like all, this is a very long winded way of saying, I think they're pseudo revolutionaries. Uh, and there's at least something, if I, even if I don't necessarily approve of revolutionary Marxism, there's at least something dignified in being a revolutionary Marxist rather than a fake one. Mm-hmm. I'm going to read a little passage that you uh, wrote about this. Um, But if Marxists hate wokesters, which they do, that doesn't mean Marxist has a negative connotation in wokeese. In fact, one of the ways wokeese keeps its outsider transgressive language vibe, despite being the lingua franca of every international corporation, Hollywood, and monopoly social media platforms, in other words, despite being the language of the man, is in the nasty inflection it gives to capitalism, as though wokeness were a revolutionary threat to the current ruling order rather than the tool of its elites. The fact that woke Marxism is a cosmetic affectation with zero political context content makes for one of the areas in which wokeese to standard English translation can be hardest. I 
wholly agree with that. Yeah. I mean, you just look, it's very simple. I think if you, if you find that the Disney corporation is being lauded across the media sphere for, you know, the movie Black Panther, which has the foreign pot, which it has and endorses the foreign policy of the George W. Bush administration, right? It's a, it's a vastly technologically superior uh, world power deciding to step into itself, shoe isolationism and go to war elsewhere to help to, you know, throw over their regimes, establish bases and basically impose its morality on other countries. Like that is, that is literally what that movie is about. And uh, it's supposed to be this like terrific achievement in wokeness. And then, you know, you have the kids, the places where wokeness, I don't think anybody disputes that the places where wokeness is the most popular, except in so far as they might dispute the usage of the word. Nobody disputes that wokeness is the most popular at places such as name an Ivy League university or a one tier down, you know, extremely uh, expensive private university in the United States or, um, you know, in the advertisements put out by Nike or in, you know, at the Oscars, right? Like these are where, what sorts of places are these? These are rich people places, right? The wokeness was extremely popular at my extremely expensive private high school. Like the rich people love wokeness. It's a rich people thing. And it is probably a rich people thing for a reason. It's not an accident. It's a rich people thing because it serves rich people's interests to make everything about this uh, verbal symbolic change and not some other kind of change. And also to prove that if you want to get into rich people spaces, you have to learn this, not just arcane and difficult way of thinking and speaking, but also this way of thinking and speaking that just strikes the ear of ordinary people as being absurd. I think that that word you used earlier is, is kind of the key here. It's just like, I'm sorry, you what? You wish to, uh, your big program this year for anti-racism is taking down a rock at the University of Wisconsin? Okay, I get, I mean, I know people who, like, need money and you're going to spend $100,000 taking down a rock, but okay, I guess. It just, I think it's just anathematic to people of good sense. And rich people just tend to have... Uh, enough distance from the things that one might need to exercise good sense about that it is more appealing to them. Mm. I want to return to language um, and some of the other terms that you feel are being used in a in an annoying way. I'm going to stick with that word annoying for okay. now. Um, intersection is one of the ones that you mention. Yeah, I find that one, I mean, I think it had uh, some sort of actual insight in it when Kimberly Crenshaw originally invented it. Uh, I think that it has been turned into a buzzword. There are a lot of these where, um, for example, when the, when Orientalism and colonialism were first popularized and given really their own sections of, I guess what was originally the English department, um, that was probably a positive development, but, um, whether it's intersectionality or decolonialist studies, um, they have largely morphed into just sort of sloganized meme ideas where intersectionality is just, um, you know, okay, well, I mentioned two things and I made the frankly pretty uh, shallow observation that sometimes people have two different demographic identities 
Uh, Hello. And yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead. Can you hear me? Um, yes, no, I was just, I was sarcastically saying hello, oh, I'm hello sorry, I'm sorry. because yeah. I'm such a mongrel uh, mutt here. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, you you would be uh, at the intersection of, uh, oh, an, no traffic engineer would, would wish to have to make the <laughs> stoplights for. Um, right, but like, I, I guess when I've, when I thought about, it's funny because I, I always like to try to kind of following Orwell, like take the the actual visual metaphor out of whatever uh, cliche or metaphor I'm thinking about. And, you know, intersections are complicated, but they're also not that complicated. We, ha- we all figure out how to navigate intersections fairly easily. And there are only so many kinds of them. Uh, and so the idea that like 20 years of ink of, you know, academic ink would be spilled over, Crenshaw's original observation, which I think is again a good one, just seems to me to be um, it. It suggests to me that probably people were really, really interested in the subject for reasons other than its inherent complexity and how much scholarly attention needs to be dedicated to it. Mm, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that um, there. There could even be ways of using that that concept that people aren't even drawing upon, although they're kind of obvious. So, for example, whenever here in Britain we have so-called self-appointed spokespeople, well, no, they're not so-called self-appointed, so-called spokespeople who are actually self-appointed, um, so-called representatives of the Muslim community, and it's usually men who are from the mo- the more extreme, the less integrated, the more intolerant, the more misogynistic and homophobic side of um, British British Islam. Um, when those people are brought up to speak for Muslims as a kind of oppressed class, nobody makes the kinds of parallels that Crenshaw made, which is this man may be, he may be discriminated against in wider society, but he also has a lot of power within his own community as an imam or as a father of a very patriarchal household, etc. Um, he has power over his gay son, for example. And um, so even I feel that even the more obvious and useful ways of looking at intersectionality are just ignored. Yeah. I mean, there are ways you could apply this to, I think, almost any story, because now every story is written from the identity or racial or some some related sort of demographic group identity lens. I mean, I I try to avoid this subject as many hours of the day as I can, but like coronavirus stories are being written um, in terms of how they hit various communities. And I think that's important to some degree to take data on, but you'll also see you know, X community was hit badly by coronavirus, whereas Y community did a bad job stopping the spread of coronavirus. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think intersectional scholarship will probably not analyze that difference in coverage. It's just it's just not applied well. And if you have an academic concept whose whole purpose is to apply 
discrepancies in how we look at different identities and then it isn't done well. But then also that concept is wildly lauded and considered to be cutting edge probably just isn't that useful a concept. Well, one of the problems with the concept and the reason why it's not used in more sophisticated ways is that to use it in the kind of way I suggested with, for example, the quote-unquote spokesperson of the Muslim community, um, the conservative imam, would be to understand that power is situational. Um, and that um, be, being um, in a position of power or being in a position of powerlessness is not a fixed characteristic that you can, and it's not a kind of equation that you can calculate once for all, once and for all by um, plugging a person's race and sex and sexuality and level of able-bodiedness, etc., into a calculator and coming up with a value. Right. I mean, this is what I mean about the the COVID thing. Where I, I mean, I think your example is good too. But I'll. I, I, two things about it. One, I mean, the spokespeople thing is where it already just breaks down. I, I was taught that the the idea that one person speaks for their entire community or identity uh, is is called tokenism and is a moral and logical error. Uh, and I and I still believe that uh, I somehow along the way, since since I was taught that everybody else seems to have decided not to still believe that. Uh, I don't know why or when, and I, I object. Um, but also like there's been this thing. I, I agree that men are not generally speaking put down by society. I also think that it's perfectly fine to then observe that more men are being killed by this virus worldwide and just say that sometimes in, in how we look at coronavirus statistics. And I don't think that this is like somehow a, men's rights point or an anti-feminist point or something. And it's very strange to me that we have basically avoided that fact in the coverage over a year. Well, there's also this really strange, um, sorry, this is a slight digression from the language thing, but it's just on my mind, so I'm going to say it. Um, there is this strange perception that different groups kind of have their moment in the sun so it used to be the turn, quote unquote, of white men. Um, and now the future is female, or now it's the turn of black people, or um, now, you know, it's, it's the turn of immigrants or uh, whatever group it might be. Um, but I mean, that would make sense if we all lived for millennia each, and therefore we lived we live through each period, but we don't. Everybody who is alive today, it's your turn now. What happened in history is, um, you know, you don't get some kind of benefit from um, other people who looked like you or shared some of your characteristics having been privileged before you were born. I mean, you may literally, you may literally have inherited money, etc. Um, but at a more abstract level, it's not, it can't be, it used to be men's turn in the past, so now we shit on men, it's women's turn. That just doesn't make sense. I mean, it makes sense to people for whom I think they, they would say that you're wildly underplaying the inherited money thing, or they're saying that the reason we have cultural ideas that it's, you know, it looks funny for somebody 
who looks like this to have this job, but doesn't look funny for somebody who looks like that to have the job is that they, we inherited the ideas just as, just almost as literally as people inherit money. Um, I understand all those arguments. I think that they are, um, this is sort of why people sometimes talk about liberal humanism. I think that they're inhuman in some way. And then, so that I have a moral objection. I also have a practical objection, which is there is this, I, I think rather, I understand why it's intuitive. There's an intuitive idea that, okay, well, if we like erred on the side of pro male sexism and of racism in the past, that like erring on the other side doesn't consist of going neutral now and hoping it works itself out. It errs on the side of being like pro female and pro black now. Um, I, I get that. Like it, it makes sense in a, um, in terms of like almost a child's sense of fairness. Like, you know, the one kid got two allowances last week. So instead of just saying, okay, now we're going to give an allowance to each, we're going to give two allowances to the other kid now. Like that, all that makes sense. It's just, it's a child's sense of fairness. It isn't really, I think, what works best. And I think that a better way to approach it would be with um, a historical view that says this horribly anathematized and 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 much maligned thing now that we that has been deemed since i learned it as merely what you should think like race blindness theory or just you know whatever justice blindness theory um you know during the period over which it supposedly reigned which is roughly in the united states from like the passage of the civil rights act to whenever the academy sort of tried to institute wokeness and overwhelm and defeat it in i don't know 10 years ago um like did conditions materially improve not just in terms of household wealth but also in terms of like social attitudes and like if you were just to like ask people who like marched in the 60s like hey is it better to be you now 50 years later like would they say yes um i think on that metric one kind of has to declare uh very qualified and with a ton of caveats, a success of these supposedly blind theories. Um, and, um, and then, you know, that doesn't mean you can't be very enraged by um, the success they have yet to achieve or the, the slow rate of success. But um, that also doesn't suggest that replacing them with some other theory in the way that we think and the way that we make law and the way that we kind of teach children about the way that uh, group identity and culture should operate um, so that some other theory will, will speed up that pace. It may actually undo some of that progress. There's also an implication. I, I mean, in the image that you gave of the two children, um, I understand that thinking, but it's not the same child. So, right. um, you know, I am no better off. I didn't inherit any money, and I'm no bet better off for the fact that um, other people who superficially look like me or seem like me, um, actually, I'm a bit of a strange case, but other Parsis, for example, the Parsis are a very prosperous group, um, but um, and so many of them have inherited money. But does that help me since I didn't inherit any? Um, I, I don't, I mean, there's this odd kind of idea that we somehow benefit and suffer with other people who are defined as being part of our group. And I just find right. that a bit, a bit odd. 
Well, it, it goes to the same thing as the, this is why all of this, this language stuff comes up the way it does is because it, it's an attempt to reify the, the idea that you're questioning. It's, it's this idea that um, these groups are not sort of what we might call like just merely nominalist philosophical categories. They're real things. They really exist. There really is such a thing as white people. And then when we debate whether somebody is white or isn't white, it's just whether they are in the real group. Whereas I would say, no, it's a, it's a word we can use to pick out some group of people in the world, but it's not real. There's no such thing. It's just like a description. But um, I mean, I think there is such a thing as like, I don't know, we can get into philosophy of language all we wish, but like the you know philosophers love to go on and on about tables and chairs. But uh, I think that there are objects in the world that exist and then there are concepts that are useful, just like analytic categories. Uh, and, you know, to some degree it might be useful to measure certain racial categories in terms for like, I don't know, medical purposes maybe or something or like economic ones is a reason that some things are on the census. But does that mean that there is such a thing? as like these races i that used to be called race realism and it was what like neo-nazis thought and it's not what i think Mm, me neither i disagree even with the medical stuff because well there are some rare cases like sickle cell anemia which are overwhelmingly found only in one particular group but usually we're talking about frequencies so for example um this specific blood factor is more this specific rare blood factor is more common among Parsis. I'm gonna I'm I'm making this up, but I'll use mm-hmm. my own one of my own groups as an example. Is more common among Parsis than among the normal Indian population, let's say. But it's still a rare blood factor. So perhaps two percent of the normal Indian population have it and ten percent of Parsis have it. Is it therefore something intrinsically Parsi, given that most Parsis don't even have that blood factor? That is how most of the medical stuff works. Um it's Yeah, about- there is some though that refer I mean in some like if it refers to something that is literally about color, like I've seen medical textbooks that refers to the color of skin and gums as an indicator of like, for example, like rashes and things that are oh yeah there uh, are some things and then if they just assume that white is the the dominant or majority thing then of course that will ill serve black patients when when medical students aren't taught that actually like people with different colored skin will have different colored rashes or etc yeah but these are obviously practical considerations that literally nobody disagrees with Mm, mm. yeah uh, and then so that to create some sort of philosophical worldview around them, I mean, th- these things should be addressed. And the fact that they haven't already been addressed in some cases is, I think, really great evidence that, like, we need to address these things. And that the reason we haven't addressed them is probably some sort of general social failure to care about some people rather than others. Mm-hmm. Uh And I'm very concerned about that. I also don't think that that means that in order to undo that, what we need to do is think that race is super real. It's this real thing. And we need to like talk about it all the time and make it one of the verticals on the page of all of the most august publications in various English speaking countries, the way that, you know, Breitbart used to have a black crime section. Uh, I, I find that just incredibly creepy and it's, it's really not hard conceptually to, 
say, here are a bunch of practical considerations. Here's a bunch of real things that happen. They are unjust and wrong. And also, we're not going to like make everything about how real race is all the time. Yeah, I think I guess I would add to that that I'm fine with celebrations. Um, I don't really have a problem with, um, you know, I'm African American and these are my favorite African American singers and musicians and sports people. Or um, I I don't have any issue with that in the same ways I don't have an issue with gay pride or something of that kind, but. I think that's very different from considering that to be that that should be uh, whether people fit into certain groups or not should always be our central consideration or the first lens through which we see and approach them and think about their situation. Yeah, and and you see this in uh, again. I don't I don't want to be too focused on on American politics in a, in a transatlantic podcast. But um, I think that you, you're starting to see something that um, is, uh, I mean, it's borderline Lebanese in the way that uh, the press has approached the way that the Biden administration, the, sorry, the Biden transition is doing its, its early hiring, where it's like, ah, um, well, a, a black man is the secretary of defense, but not a woman and a, um, a Gay, you know, so far there hasn't been a major gay appointment to a cabinet level position or something, um, and you know this this matters because representation matters. And to me, I'm like I'm a I'm a little R Republican. I believe in the idea of a republic, and I, I I'm like, well, we but yes, representation matters. That's why we each have representatives in in the Congress. That's why the president is voted for by the whole country and represents us. And I like communities are things that are like around you physically. That's your community. You know them, not a bunch of people theoretically, abstractly, conceptually tied to you. That, that doesn't make any sense. I'm not part of the white community, but I'm part of the North Brooklyn community. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It also, I mean, from my perspective here in the UK, it seems very, um, it seems very unlike what is happening on the ground. Um, I mean, here where I'm living, I'm not living in some kind of monoracial enclave. And it, it wouldn't make sense, um, you know, even if I didn't have an, um, even if my father hadn't immigrated here from Pakistan, um, even if both my parents had been Scottish, for example, it still wouldn't make sense to me to think of my neighborhood, my community as being a kind of white British community because, um, I mean, a lot of people here are not, um, are not white and everybody is different. Um, I don't really, it, it seems like a really odd way of dividing people. Yeah. And it's also, it's fundamentally anti-intellectual and anti, even if it's not just intellectuals at issue, um, I guess downstream of its being anti-intellectual, it's anti-iconoclast, whereby um, people who are simply, for whatever reason, in their, I don't believe in this, but soul, uh, they just find themselves different. They're different from their family. They're different from their neighbors. They just have something in them that makes them, you know, tired of this provincial life, <laughs> like even in London and New York. Uh, like they, uh, 
they are supposed to be grouped in with people that they don't feel a connection to or they don't act out a connection to. They want to go into some other part of the world that they identify with or they want to identify with no part of the world. Uh, They want to be something else or they just find themselves an inability to identify with the people that they sort of cosmetically are are supposedly affiliated with. And this uh, way of thinking in stereotypes that we are now supposed to think is the is the non racist or non sexist way of thinking is a way of lumping them back in with people that they might wish to break away from. Maybe they don't want to be part of their religion or they don't want to be part of their race or they don't want to be part of their neighborhood. And why can't we let them? Um, I've written about this actually with regard to the most famous Parsi icon of all, Freddie Mercury, whom, I mean, many Parsis absolutely love and claim as a kind of saint of our community. But of course, like every great artist, he um, he didn't want to be hemmed in by an ethnic identity, by a religious identity, um, by just being part of this tiny community. He wanted to appeal more broadly and really to everybody else who also didn't fit in. And that seems like the most natural thing in the world. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we we now act like when you ask, you know, who are you to somebody, the, the appropriate reply is though they asked, you know, what are you? Uh, and I, I just find that like, isn't, isn't that exactly the sort of whole thing that microaggression theory was meant to undo is this idea that you're supposed to create art and, um, and make, uh, intellectual claims as, uh, whatever the reason that you're not supposed to say to somebody, you know, but where are you really from? If, if they don't look like the majority ethnicity of their you know, wherever they happen to physically be is that like, cause it doesn't matter what, what that background might be. It matters what they think, who they are, what their character is. Um, and somehow this is all looped back around into this, you know, as though you should have some sort of, uh, you know, list of your characteristics. And it is merely that list kind of mushed together that makes you, you, uh, but you, are so much more or just not more you just that just isn't it that just isn't what makes you you yeah i was thinking back to that use of the passive tense in that dictionary.com entry um not capitalizing black can be seen as dismissive disrespectful and dehumanizing and i think it ties into something to another word that you complain about in your column which is problematic because to say something is problematic is just a gesture at a certain, it's dodgy in some way, without ever defining what the actual problem is. And it's a, there seems to be a, an abdication of responsibility here. Um, it's often said that political correctness, well, it was often said of political correctness, it's less frequently said of wokeism, but of political correctness, it was often said, well, this is just politeness. It's just politely referring to people in the ways in which they wish to be referred, using the language and terminology that they want you to use about them. But 
politeness for me is about interpersonal interactions. It shouldn't be, um, you shouldn't need somebody who is writing something that's not directly addressed to you to be necessarily polite about you to spare your feelings. That is not a, an appropriate standard to which to hold public discourse. Right. And at the, and it's also this, there's this, um, I mean, who is the person finding it Im, impolite or dismissive, disrespectful and dehumanizing? And if the, if the author of, who wrote that article for dictionary.com had written, for example, when I see that a writer has not capitalized the word black um, to mean to refer to black people, I think that person is dismissive and I feel disrespected and dehumanized, then it would show up how how sort of ludicrous this whole this premise is. Right. It seems to me that propriety or politesse is something that is certainly important to consider, but that one of the reasons that we have sort of what I always harp on calling a critical culture, right? Like a like a negative book review is not polite. It's not a polite thing to do to the to the author of the book. Um it does this mean that we should only it like your mother might teach you if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. Like that that's a consideration of politeness. But um, in critical and intellectual evaluation and discourse, um, that is not completely thrown out the window, but it's tertiary at best because something um, hived off from the rest of society and ultimately in many ways more important for its own, on its own terms is being done here. And um, it's not like using your salad fork fifth to the left to speak to people in a way that is um, precise in intellectual discourse. It's, it's, a, it's something much more important. And, and then, I mean, it raises all of these just, as you say, like ludicrous questions. Like, well, if, if this person is speaking for uh, this person of, you know, who writes the dictionary.com piece, is it, uh, if it becomes 51% of people, then are they accurately speaking for this community or is, is it only if, like, is it a democracy of how people wish to be referred to or are there philosophical considerations about whether it's an accurate and legitimate way to refer to people or if even 5% of people would be offended and therefore you'd be being impolite to them? Is it how you should change your speech? Or um, if you predict that perhaps the way people wish to be referred to will change in two years, should that, change whether you decide to refer to them that way i mean like these are just questions of politesse might not really be at issue in how we decide style guidance about stylistic and precise copy should be determined uh and i think the elevation or maybe even the opposite uh the lowering of these important questions of sort of morality to like the like the spell checking of the world um makes it seem as though it's like you know you're oh you're just using incorrect grammar if you disagree with me well 
Maybe not. Maybe you disagree with me and you're you're trying to say I'm incorrect, but we have a disagreement that can't be settled on any terms as precise as grammar. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think we also shouldn't put the most sensitive and easily offended people in charge of the copy editing rules. Yeah. Well, there's two things here, right? There's like the people who are actually the most sensitive and easily offended and, and are, are expressing something genuine who need to be maybe told, don't be so easily offended, but also like need to be treated seriously. And then there are people who are flat out faking it. They don't, they're it's cynical and they, they really don't believe what they're saying. And they kind of need to be told to go screw. Uh, and too much of uh, critical discourse these days is taken up with determining who is and is not acting in good faith. I find it exhausting and pointless to some degree, but the question is uh, the question can't be avoided sometimes. Mm. One for me, particularly egregious example in which I think people are faking it in a way that I find just deeply offensive is um, these when people use the term settler colonialism and when they make these declarations about how, for example, we are holding this, we are holding this human resources Zoom meeting. Um, well, um, I, you know, I'm Zooming from land that was taken from the Chippewa Indians um, <laughs> or whatever the correct term is. I'm not really up on First Nations and, and Native American stuff. So I might be using the wrong, incorrect, kind of politically incorrect terminology here. But they make this declaration of their awareness that it, they're living or working on stolen land. And that feels like the most extraordinary gesture politics. Yeah. Because are they going to give any of the land back? Anybody, are they going to be? You know, are they going to leave? I think of this like psychologically often as like guilt displacement theory or like guilt, like guilt displacement mechanisms, where if you are, even if you make the most minor of gestures, which in this case is merely a declaration of self awareness of some past harm. Um, I mean, first of all, I think that there's like a whole problem with the very notion of indigeneity, as though every a uh, piece of parcel of land on earth going down to the core of the earth is is sort of properly belongs to some ethnic group uh and this can't change over history and as though some people are sort of permanent victims i find this whole thing let's just say problematic and questionable but anyway um and right it treats certain people as merely sort of tribes with flags and other people as like conquerors bestride the earth and it doesn't give any um any sort of explanatory power over to like randomness in history, such as whether certain people are more susceptible to germs. Uh, it doesn't give any, and then on the flip side, doesn't give any agency to certain people. Anyway, all of that aside, I think um, it, what they, they don't mean to say, particularly in, in an uh, American context, they don't mean to say, we really think that we should give the land back. They mean to say we are superior to the other Americans who wouldn't even bother to make this declaration, uh, right? The, the, the really evil Americans are the Republicans or the conservatives or the less educated liberals who don't know the name of the tribe on which, you know, whose, whose land on which we sit. Mm -hmm. uh, 
And it's just, I, I, I mean, you can't take it literally. It's not a serious statement. So they, like, they haven't learned anything about the people that they are supposedly so concerned about the theft from. They believe that the moral crime of theft can be sort of like a sin passed down between generations. Like these, there's so much weird thinking baked into that, that you really have to, I think, think about it as something other than literal, however it is you do that. It's also so easily co-opted by the right. Um, I mean, all of this stuff about um, people who've invaded supposedly indigenous ancestral lands and things, all of that rhetoric is used by the Hindu nationalists um, all the time. The Muslim invaders who came and took over Hindu lands and um, and also, uh, you know, so many of us, we're, anybody who's living outside sub-Saharan Africa is an immigrant. It's just a question of when people moved, at what point in history, and where, from whence they came and where they went. But human history is a history of migrations. And if you feel that it's important that the land belongs somehow to the indigenous peoples, then does that mean that you would reject somebody like my father who came over from Pakistan in the 1980s? Well, he didn't take, I think that the way, what it is, I think, not to just butt in, but the, I think that it's the, it's the uh, placing or the misplacing of kind of a more standard model of national self-determination, nationalism, sovereignty, and these concepts from sort of Europe to the United States and then the, you know, emission of ideas in the U.S. elsewhere where they often don't fit or don't belong. So, right, like people following the kind of great empires of Europe and as they broke down into national zones would feel that they had a real people with a real historical existence, however far back it may have gone. And then they formed self-determining national units. Not all of them. Some of them remained empires. You know, how exactly how far down they broke is a different question. You know, is Italian a real thing or is it made up of a bunch of different little units? These are all questions. But um, in as much as it's very interesting, you know, you and I both seem to think that India and the United States are really only really, really big democracies that are sort of multi-confessional and multi-ethnic, um, where Europe has a, a different sense of kind of what makes a country a country. And then I think a lot of Americans don't think about this necessarily at all, or certainly not explicitly. And so they take this idea that like, oh, why should Armenians have a country that has borders and is mostly Armenian? Well, because after a certain period in history, everybody decided that the best way that countries should be allotted is that each people should have a country and it should be self-determined. And so then they sort of take these loose ideas that kind of evolved from romantic nationalism in Europe in the romantic period, and they poured it over without quite thinking about it to something having to do with Native American tribal nations. And it all sort of breaks down from there into these things that sound good and they sound intuitive and they don't make very much sense actually at all because they don't fit in the place where they're being applied. Mm -hmm. Maybe we could end with, um, could you tell me a few of your least favorite words and language usages? Ooh, 
Uh, I wish I had prepared that. Oh, sorry. Because uh, I'm, I'm thinking right now. No, no, that's okay. It's fun to try to do it on the fly. Uh, I I'm thinking right now about my my word of the year for 2020, which will probably not be my favorite word. Uh, so if you have any suggestions, tell me. The uh, the one you most I mean, you love to hate. Um, yeah. I think you had a lovely um, article on pods on the new coronavirus-related um, meaning of the word pod. I think here in the UK, we usually use bubble. We usually talk about bubbles in the sense that, uh, in which you mean pods, i.e. A, a bubble is um, your household plus one other household at the moment. Well, it depends on which tier of restrictions you're under, where you are in the which depends on where you are in the country. Um, so your your bubble is the people that you are allowed close contact with indoors um, or outdoors in a garden. So ev- with everybody else, you can have contact only outdoors in a public space. And then a private garden is different? Yes. A private garden is only for people in your bubble, i.e. your household plus um, your permitted one other household. Um, and then there's also, even in public, there's also the rule of six, which in my household we call the joy of sex. Um, no more than uh, the joy of the joy of sex. We call it the joy of six. The joy of six. <laughs> um, I completely fluffed up that punchline, um, where a maximum of six people can come together. So the the bubble is about trying to not lose all of your contacts and allow people who live solo to join another household in order to have some kind of social contact um, dur- despite the pandemic restrictions. And um, you you talk you write critically about people who say that the reason why people are not sticking to some people are not have not been sticking to social distancing rules is because those rules are not set out clearly enough. And you write, and I think this is wonderful. Frankly, I am skeptical that how to behave during a plague is a definitional matter, nice as it would be for us writers. Um, yet Goodman, who is the um, writer you're referring to, I'll put this in the show notes, yet Goodman writes like it's a word thing, like people adhering imperfectly to pod protocol is a matter of verbal imprecision or concept creep, not human yearning for a life without onerous restrictions. Bubble and pod have also run into the same communication pitfalls as social distancing, quarantine, and a host of other new and reappropriated terms this year. Inventing new words or phrases is always a gamble. Their creators have relative control over their meaning, but the verbiage might not catch on. But I really like that. I'm skeptical that how to behave during a plague is a definitional matter. Yeah, I think the word of the year and the things that are annoying me lately really has to be something related to the virus, where you know, early on, there was a whole fight over whether calling a virus from China, the Chinese virus is racist. And I think it seemed to just divide people on totally on intuition. And I believe the people who had the alternate intuition that I did, uh, and I don't wish to upset them. I also find found that like, 
there were people who felt that it sh- it showed a certain deference to uh, the establishment of experts who certainly uh, are important and necessary people to sit, to use the most sort of like uh, medical technically sounding things. So they would write like SARS dash cove dash 19 with like the capital C and then the lowercase O uh, and everyone just gave up on that and just says coronavirus now, even though of course other things are coronas virus, coronaviruses, whatever. Um, so it's that, I think the thing that I enjoyed writing the most this year about words was something about the word technical, where um, it turned out that a big part of the reason why there was the, there was such a drag, uh, I mean, like it was so slow, uh, the organizations like the WHO and uh, the European Health Commission and the CDC in the US were so slow to point out that um, the virus could be passed by, to put it as simply as possible, sharing air was that like there was this exact definitional matter in like clinical studies of viruses about what counts as aerosolized. And then somebody else pointed out like, hey, like this definition just doesn't matter. We could just point out the thing that people actually need to know in terms of changing their behavior. And then that totally technical divide in how people actually think turns out to have been like occluding rather than helping people understand things because it was really just for very technical minded people who were looking at the micron diameter across of particulate droplets. Um, So I think that it's the thing that I have been surprised to find myself focusing on word wise this year, because I, my background is in philosophy and I like being really, really pedantic and precise is that often these technical pedantic, precise distinctions um, are not the best way to communicate with the public at large and that public health communications are often harmed by a focus on them. So probably if I focus on anything this year that has really annoyed me, it'll be um, something, some word around the virus that one could have predicted wouldn't work. I mean, actually, it'll be this. Uh, Like four weeks after the term social distancing, that has become so uh, important in all of our lives, came into existence, they said, uh, no, 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 no. We don't want to imply that you shouldn't be able to socialize like via Zoom. So actually it's physical distancing. And I was able to predict at the time because I'm, uh, I have eyes uh, and a soul and whatever that like people wouldn't start saying that. People had already gotten social distancing. They'd already started using it. They knew what it meant. They knew its limitations. They didn't all agree on exactly what it meant, but it was a term and it had caught on. And they weren't all going to say, oh, wait, update that. And so um, I thought that was a really great example of the sort of limitations of people telling you what words to use. People were able to tell people what words to use and get everyone to start saying social distancing, but they weren't able to say, ah, actually revise that uh, memo to the world. You should start using this different replacement term. Uh, People are, you know, have some acceptance of being told what to do as far as how to speak, but only so much. Yeah. And sometimes really you have to let go of um, your linguistic precision because even though a term, strictly speaking, seems to imply something, that is not what the people who are using that term understand by it. So the one that uh, that I had to give up on was um, Islamophobia, which was a term that I used to be quite allergic to because I felt it occluded the difference between being bigoted against Muslims as people and criticizing Islam. 
But I had to just let it go because um, you can tell from the context what what people are focusing on, whether they are whether their criticisms are anti-free speech or um, are overly deferential towards Islam, the religion, um, or whether they are being quasi-racist, because Muslims are not a race, but still, that's another another example of something that I would give up on because um, anti-Muslim bigotry operates like a form of racism. And I just stopped worrying about it. I still use anti-Muslim bigotry myself. But when somebody else says or writes Islamophobia, I don't try to correct them and I don't assume that they are confused between criticizing Islam and and um, being bigoted against Muslims. That's interesting. I think that's very convincing what you say. I, I have made the point that you, I guess, used to make, um, in particular in, a, in an essay I wrote about a year and a half or two years ago about Christopher Hitchens. But maybe you're right, and I should just relent on that. I guess when I think about people sometimes saying the reason that certain wars have been prosecuted is because of Islamophobia and people simply want you know, Muslims dead because they don't care about them as, you know, they don't see them as human beings the way that racists don't see certain members of other races as human beings. I just think that explanation is wanting and doesn't, doesn't account for the available data. Uh, yeah. But on the other hand, I think you're right that I'm probably just being a pedant in a way that it doesn't, that isn't called for. Um, well, I, I still stick to it in my own writing and I do correct it when, uh, when ARIO writers uh, use Islamophobia or Islamophobic, I change that to anti-Muslim bigotry. But um, but I've kind of let go, uh, let go of this idea that if the terminology is imprecise, therefore people's ideas are necessarily imprecise. Um, and I think the other area in which I myself um, am happy to use the terminology in an imprecise way just because those are the terms that everybody uses, and therefore it makes more sense to me, is with female genital mutilation versus circumcision. I, um, Even though I've done some work with Brian David Earp, and I guess I have become a little bit of a adjacent to an intactivist, and I understand why people object to the difference in um, terminology here, and Brian Earp therefore always talks about infant genital cutting of either sex, because to talk about mutilation seems, it seems first of all, very cruel to women who've undergone FGM to imply that they have been mutilated. It seems wrong to say that to those women. And it also implies a complete, uh, a very strong difference in motivation for carrying out both forms of gentle cutting, which I don't actually think um, holds up. I think both are done for very similar reasons, tradition, um, religion, mistaken idea, misguided ideas about hygiene That's, and health. I haven't thought about that at all, but I, I, I think that the, um, the American politics uh, corollary is this, there's this idea that um, the entire uh, fight over abortion is going to come down to, or has already come down to, the brilliance of the uh, 
political sloganeering, pro-life and pro-choice, and that mm-hmm. you know that people who are on one side get to be called pro-life or get to be called pro-choice. And I just think that's nonsense. I just think it isn't true that the success of the pro-life movement is primarily a, you know caused by you know getting it itself called that name or vice versa for pro-choice. I think that while there's probably some use to that, uh, and it certainly is a piece of, uh, you know, political rhetoric, people just give too much power over to these things. And, and I might care more or, or care less about some particular one if I think that it's inaccurate, um, because I disagree with the the description itself for my own purposes and I just care about accuracy, but I don't think that the actual sort of causal effect of these sorts of things is nearly as high as many other people do. Yeah, people are not quite as influenceable, I think, as as is often assumed. They're not as easily fooled by specious language. But um but they can, I think, if they're if they're asked to use specious language all the time if they're asked to use dozens and dozens of specious terms they can mark themselves out as somebody who is you know an excellent and uh learned user of a specious group of terms that um that show that fundamentally doesn't change the world in any way but that does show that they are a person who you know, cares about the world in some particular way and cares about other people perceiving them as being a great change the world carer about, uh, wow, that was an extremely inelegant phrase, but I think you know what I mean. <laughs> yes. Um, you say, and I think I, I, I really liked this um, in particular, you said, uh, you write, um, I'm dead set against people who think we can dictioneer our way to Eden or at least their way to power. I'm suspicious of anyone who thinks justice is just a perfected style guide away. Yeah. I mean, this is exactly what we've been talking about. This this idea that, you know, if if only... First of all, I mean, there's two problems with this. One of them is that normal people just aren't going to get on with the, you know, the newest, latest in innovations in weird you know, sort of half academic, half activist words. It's just not going to happen. And so you're just separating out those people. And the second one is that even if it did happen, very little to nothing would be achieved. Uh, and somehow there is this group of people who are very, very excited by the usage of these phrases. I remember there were dozens of articles when in, I think, the second to last debate between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, she used the phrase systemic racism and it and it was heralded as though some sort of great victory against racism had been achieved because a major party candidate had sort of said the thing. Uh, and of course it wasn't true. It just wasn't right. So keeping aware of this distinction between what is and is not relevant often entails keeping, uh, keeping aware of the distinction between whether something is merely a verbal fashion and whether it, that verbal fashion fashion, uh, reflects reality, whether it reflects, a, I mean, maybe a social reality, but something that is really happening, not just a language change. Yeah. I mean, I think attitudes, 
influence our choice of language much more than the other way around. Exactly. Um, Nick, is there anything that I haven't given you a chance to say that you would that you wish that I had given you a chance to say? No, no. I think this has been a really great conversation, and I'm I'm so grateful to have had a chance to come on. Well, the I mean, the only, I guess the only thing is that um, you know your comparison of sort of academies and why that like the one okay so the one subject I I guess I would bring up is just that it's bad writing uh, and that this is where uh, your piece writing wrongs I thought was was so good and so useful um, and also so overlapping with um, the piece that I was so flattered to find you were interested in is just that like it actually really does matter. One of one of the ways that language really does matter and word choice and word usage does really matter is um, that like beautiful and persuasive and catchy writing is different from its opposite because it makes people like it and it makes people want to pay attention to it rather than slog through it. Um, and so when there are a lot of these verbal fashions are for words that are simply quite ugly and constructions that are quite awkward. Uh, and I think that if we do wish to kind of get people on the side of certain movements, when those movements or areas of, of the world like academia tend to use language that just sucks as writing, it's a, it, it does change the world in meaningful and substantive ways for the worse, because it, me- it means that the people who care about certain things that we might wish to value, such as social justice in its highest and best sense, or such as the value of academia and its areas of inquiry that are often um, seem quite arcane and confusing on first blush, people are off put by that. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I, I also just want to say before we end that this has been a rather red, meaty, anti-woke um, episode, uh, fairly unusually for this podcast. And I do know that I have a few patrons who are who definitely consider themselves on the social justice left. And I, um, I'm i not intending this as, um, as an attack on anybody. I think of these as social tendencies. Um, and yeah, I think of them as, as tendencies within society rather than two groups of whom the other group is the enemy. I absolutely agree with that, by the way. I didn't mean to be anyone's red meat. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There is some joke to be made about beefcakes and things, but I'm not, I'm much too dignified a person to make it. I won't even touch that. (laughs) Thank you so much, Nick. Thank you so much for having me. It was my pleasure. Have a wonderful week, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Two for Tea. Your patronage helps to keep this podcast alive and flourishing. Your support means the world to me. Stay well, stay happy, and have a wonderful week.